today we're looking at the cost of buying an investment, which could take into account currency differences if it's an overseas stock, the difference in price between the buying price and the selling price, which is called the spread, and whether there are any relevant perks which come with owning a particular share. As a novice investor, could you explain what is meant by the term yield, please? Yes, yield is the income that, uh, or the annual income that uh, an investment generates, uh, i.e. the uh, numerator, uh, over the share price, which is the denominator. So, for example, if a share annually paid four pence in dividend and the share price was a pound, the yield would be 4%. It doesn't have to be just equities. Uh, the same logic and maths holds for, for bonds as well. And would it be foolish to assume that a share which has a high yield is better to own than a share with a low yield? Well, speaking generally, what you would expect is that a lower growth business would have a higher yield because investors or the market, however you wish to term it, are looking at the expected returns and they believe that at that moment, that that stock would have to deliver a higher yield and therefore a lower growth rate in order to deliver the returns that are built within its share price. Whereas a faster growing business, you would expect the yields to be lower for the simple reason that the capital growth side of the equation would be expected to be bigger. And sometimes if you see a high yield, could that be a sign that the company is in trouble? It could be because a high historic dividend may have been paid out, but let's suppose that something uh, comes out of the ether and the share price, let's just say halves, that doesn't necessarily mean that the dividend yield looking ahead has doubled. It could be that the stock market is expecting a cut in that dividend, and therefore at that moment in time, a high historic payout compared to a low share price does not necessarily imply that the yield will have doubled. So the answer is yes, it could imply that something has gone wrong or certainly that in the future, the market is not expecting that same level of income distribution. Yes, because I think I once heard you give an analogy of a, a steam engine with the carriages behind it. And you have to remember which comes first because the engine delivers the profits, doesn't it? Yes, I would argue that the yield should be the afterthought of the needs of the business. So the business that is, is cracking on and has projects that it can reinvest in at sensible rates of return, capital should be allocated to those. What's left could be paid out as a dividend, but that's likely to be a relatively small, a small yield uh, because a smaller percentage of the profits are being paid out and the share price is, is perhaps higher than the average share price because of the decent prospects that are perceived to, um, to, to await, whereas you know, vice versa holds true that very often you see a business that doesn't want to cut its dividend and, and then more and more resources are given over to the payment of that dividend, but to the detriment of the, uh, of the business itself. Thank you. Duncan or Robert, would you look at a higher yield investment for the purposes of an ISA? Uh, when we're buying investments, um, 
and putting them into ISAs, then yes, we do try and buy that, uh, place the higher yielding investment within the ISA. It makes sense. We know the problems associated with the pandemic, that the government is going to look at raising taxes wherever it can to pay for the pandemic. And I think that being charged more tax on your unearned income could well be on the cards. And you never know, you might well end up paying more tax on income, which is outside the ISA. And within the ISA, it is quite possible that they might start to cap ISAs, just like, just like with pensions. So they wouldn't cap them retrospectively, would they, Duncan? They would give you, rather like pensions, a chance to have a lifetime exemption certificate for the amount that you have. Yeah, I mean, at this stage, it's just our speculation. But I mean, we have clients now who are putting, have been putting money into personal equity plans since they started in the mid 80s. And they've got way over seven figures in ISAs and are generating £40,000 worth of income tax free. And sadly, I don't think that it will be palatable as far as the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer is concerned. Well, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and his predecessors for a little while have not actually increased the annual contribution. So they are, I suppose, taxing it by stealth in any event, given that we have some inflation and there is a school of thought that says there could be some more inflation down the road. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Which really means that if there is a good investment with a decent yield, the ISA is a good place to start. Yes, I totally agree. I mean, it's foolish not to put the higher yielders into the ISAs at the onset. Okay. Robert, why is there sometimes a large or small gap between buying and selling prices on shares? If you were a market maker in a smaller company and you knew that trade in that company was very limited, you would make sure that if you were buying or selling them, you stood to make a decent profit if you, if you facilitate the trade. So you don't want to be stuck with, if you, let's say you buy you know, 100,000 shares in a very small company, you do not want to be stuck with them for too long. So you need to make sure that the equivalent trade the other side gives you enough profit just in case you're stuck with the shares. And so this would tend to apply. So if there is a share, for example, like Barclays Bank, which most people would understand to be a fairly big organisation and a, a relatively actively traded share, the gap between the buying and selling price is likely to be smaller than one for a company that's just come up with a new invention that is not as well known. Is that the case? Uh, As a rule of thumb, yes. You can buy and sell millions of shares of Barclays Bank very, very Mm -hmm. easily. So the market maker isn't that worried about being left with any, left with shares on his book. So he'll say, well, the turn, they call it, or the spread between the buying and the selling price can be tiny because he knows that he's going to be able to trade these shares very, very easily. So as an investor, really what I'm asking is that you have to consider when buying a non-mainstream quoted company, the difference between those prices, the spread as you call it, on your buying transaction and your selling transaction, because it is potentially a costlier type of investment than one of the 
better known shares. That's absolutely true, Ian. And as the uh, former senior partner of Kaywood Smithy used to say, it's very easy to buy a share. It's not so easy sometimes to sell them. Well, I know exactly where he's coming from on that one. Thank you, Robert. Duncan, I remember when Channel Tunnel floated, if that's uh, it's an interesting concept, a floating tunnel. The shareholders were given the opportunity to visit that wonderful country of France and you got discounted tickets because you were a shareholder. I bought some shares in Harry Ramsden's fish and chip shops and you got 20% discount. So do people get bamboozled by these shareholders' perks or are they a thing of the past? When I started working, there was a, a book virtually full of all the different types of discounts you could get. That now can be consolidated onto one page. So years ago, people did buy the shares for discounts, particularly, as you say, Eurotunnel, pre-Eurotunnel, it was Townsend, Torres and preference shares, where you got half price travel. And there were many, many more which used to offer all sorts of quite significant discounts. Nowadays, the discounts are fairly minimal. Next offers a small discount. M&S used to send vouchers. They no longer do that. And possibly the bigger one at the moment is that if you have 100 Carnival shares, then you can get, I think it's $100 of onboard credit. But of course, at this moment in time, not many people are going cruising. I think it can be a distraction. I think some of the shares have proved a disaster from a performance point of view, unless you are actually using the perks all the time. Of course, some have been more positive. But Townsend Torreson was a good example. You only had to pay £600 to get half price tickets. So if you were going on the ferries on a regular basis, then then yes, it was worth it. And if, say, Eurotunnel still gave benefits, and I'm not sure whether they do, but if the shares are held through your organisation rather as an individual, do you get the benefit of all these perks? Because <laughs> you, yeah, I've got. So you must, you must get lots of channel crossings. Uh, yeah, a lot of channel crossings, uh, a lot of next clothing. No, um, we don't. When they're in nominee, cannot get the perks, and it would yeah. be fundamentally wrong for us to to take the perks for ourselves. There's a conflict of interest there. But uh, from what you're saying, the, the perks themselves are really a thing of the past. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've got two clients, one with Carnival and one with Next. And those are the only perks which we, we can actually get those from the company secretaries, even though they are in nominee name. Well, we've looked today at some of the hidden costs of buying an investment. And we've looked at the spread. So it could be that we find an investment at a yield we think is sensible. We find that the spread is sensible. And then we find that it's not quoted on the UK stock market. And it might, for example, be a Swiss stock, say Nestle. So what do we have to do when buying a foreign stock in terms of checking the exchange rate at the time we buy or if we're selling one? the exchange rate at the time we sell. Is this a factor that you should, as an investor, take into consideration? Well, I think the exchange rate could be a possible problem. When sterling is stronger, the price of a foreign quote equity will be cheaper for you as a UK buyer. Nestle being a Swiss business, uh, obviously the 
the exchange rate will have a bearing on what you pay as a as a UK purchaser. And if the Swiss franc, for example, is strong, that means it will be more expensive for you as a as a sterling holder to to buy it. Uh, there is a quid pro quo, which is that if you, you, you bought it and then sterling continued to weaken, then the translation back from Swiss francs into sterling will, will flatter the, the price in sterling. In our discussions today, we've discussed the yield on investments, the spread on investments and the possibility that the exchange rate might affect the price going into an investment. So all these things are related to investment and an investor would look at it in a different way to a speculator, because if it's an investment, it's probably something which we're looking to hold for a longer time. And whilst these factors are relevant, they're not as important to an investor as for somebody who's trying to make a quick turn. Is that a fair summary? That's a very fair summary. I was thinking when we were just discussing the the spread on investments and the the foreign exchange implications, that really, if you want to invest in a company that you perceive to be a long-term rewarding place for your capital, then the fact that you might have to pay up a bit when you buy it because the uh, the spread is is wide, and the fact that you might have to worry a bit about the foreign exchange implications, I think they both pale into insignificance. What you're really doing is you're buying a stock that you want to hold long term, and you're not that worried, therefore, if you have to pay up a bit in the first place for a decent share, or you're not really taking a view on on the foreign exchange either. It's just to explain there's a difference between how an investor looks at these things and how a day trader or a speculator might look at them. Uh, Yes. I mean, as you know, we don't deal with day traders. And to my mind, they're just as well going to the bookies. It's it's a completely different concept. Yes, Uh, because only occasionally, Robert, would you take a quick single? Correct. Absolutely correct. So I'll give you a good example about, we were talking about, they call them narrow markets. So in smaller companies. So we buy, uh, as I think you know, we're keen on a, a company called Nichols, the people who make Vimto. The other day, their shares were hit a bit, I think, with a company announcement, and they fell. So I thought, well, I'll buy a few for my discretionary client. The stock price was, let's say, £10.50 to £10.80. And when I went out actually to buy them, because I wanted to buy more than just 100 shares, which was what the, the market maker was saying he was in, I was having to pay call it £11, which made me think a bit. But then I thought, well, I actually want to buy these and I actually want to keep them. So I'll pay £11. And now, guess what? They are much more than £11 a share. So I'm a happy mm. So, and, and if you got shareholder perks from Vimto, you'd be a, an ecstatic bunny, wouldn't you? <laughs> I certainly would. This material should not be considered as advice or an investment recommendation. Investors should seek advice from an advisor regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority prior to making investment decisions. All investments carry a degree of risk. The value of investments and any income from them can go up as well as down, and you may not get back the amount originally invested. 
Information contained in this podcast was true at the time of recording.